was started out with Sticky Fingers. The first project I did was the last London Decca record called Get Your Yaya's Out. And that was the, a great meeting when uh, when uh, I met Sir Edward Lewis. We went to the board meeting because the Stones contract with London Decca had that not, they owned all the tracks recorded during their recording period, even if they hadn't heard them. So there's a great history and a great affection for the early, early British rock and roll bands, the Yardbirds, the Stones. They all, the early stuff is all their covers of American blues. Yes. And somewhere along the line, you meet the Stones and they become a big part of your life. Yeah, I met the Stones, um, uh, I think six. 67, you can look this up in the book, 67, 65, one of those 60s. I got to call my uncle, my uncle Phil Marshall. Well, first of all, before this, okay, I got to take you one step back. So again, not only did I want my own label, I decided that I wanted to be, I wanted to go to Europe. Hey, okay, I wanted, this is the pre story. I wanted to go to Europe. My father's partner in music publishing in New York was Harry Goodman, the Goodmans. They were the brothers of Benny. Harry was the original bass player of the Benny Goodman trio. Harry really was a playboy musician, smoked pot. Gene was worked in the office with the sister Ethel. My father said, take Marshall around, around to Europe to show him the ropes. Harry took care of the foreign publishing. Stole from us too, I found out later, but beside that. So I went around with Harry. He was my my advisor of prostitutes in Italy, you name it. Harry taught me how to drink cognac. Harry was a trip. And I went around the world twice with Harry, meeting all these publishers, foreign people. Then I wanted to be on my own. And I wanted to, uh, to set it up. Uh, I wanted to handle being the international director. Sure, Marshall. And I'll get a percentage of any money we make foreign. And I, was, I wanted to make my own money, my own mark. I wanted to buy a sports car at that time, and I needed to make more money. I never got a, I never was a, a quick flashback. When I went to work full-time at chess, no one ever told me what to do or where to sit. I couldn't believe it. Finally, after like three months, we were at a car wash, me and my dad coming back from the radio station. I said, what's my job? And he looked at me and he said, motherfucker, your job's watching me. That was my job to learn from him as sidekick. Right, you know? right, right. So uh, anyway, that that's a flashback. So he sends me to your Harry with Harry to Europe to watch Harry, and I learn and I want to set it up. And I met this big entertainment lawyer and come very one of the trips. The second trip around the world, we, I went to Japan with this major entertainment lawyer from New York, who was one of the first of the entertainment lawyers in New York, Alan Arrow, um, and. Um, he, he, Liza Minnelli's lawyer, he was, you know, he, he had a lot of big people. Alan came, I got close with Alan. Alan told me that we had all, we had a different, we had a label deal with London Decca, Sir Edward Lewis, the guy who was part of the invention of radar. He, they had it for the world, you know, for all of Europe. So, but the contract was up. He says, well, you can go visit all these countries, companies. He gave me a list, Barclay, Independence. I said, I'm mostly interested in independence like chess. Barclay in France. He said, well, there's a new company in England named Pi, Pi Records. It's owned by the Les and Lou Grade. The Grades were carny people who became Sir. You know, they, be they became giant entertainment moguls. 
but at that time they weren't Sir Leslie. And I became, uh, I went to Pi and I got really close with this other Jewish record guy, Louis Benjamin, who's now Sir Louis. I think he's passed away. And I made a deal. Uh, so we, 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 we said, uh, how are we going to do this with chess? You know, um, and uh, we, they were the first company that had vans to bring distribution all quickly all around the UK. So we decided to put out the chess. I picked out chess albums that would be on Marvel Arch, their discount label. So that's how we were going to introduce everyone before we introduced chess. And that's what happened. And it was very successful. And I guess Mick and Keith were, that's how they met on the subway, having chess records. One had chess records. They both liked that kind of music. That's how that began. I wanted to become the international director. And I went uh, to England and uh, set up with Pi Records just be way before the Stones. Eventually put out chess and it became very, very successful. I went to every country, Barclay and Eddie Barclay in France, Durium, the Mintangins in Italy, all independents. I was 25 years old, man. I was no one. I was the youngest out there dressed in sharp, dressed guy from the black culture. And uh, they were all, you know, this was like, it was good. It was an amazing time in my life, but I had a giant ego and, you know, I mean, I was a typically young person kind of thing. And um, so I, I set up the Europe thing and uh, I came back to, to Chicago. And then uh, my uncle says, there's a guy on the phone with a heavy English accent. You do that English shit. Here, I'm giving you the call. And it was Andrew Oldham, the Stones' first manager. And Andrew said, oh, can we record in Chicago? Well, we never let anyone record other than chess artists in our studio. But I knew about, I, I was aware of that scene already. You know, I knew the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. And in fact, on the Rotary Connections first cover, I had little stones and beetles on the bottom, little pieces of stone to give my respect to them and did a stone song in electric mud. Let's spend the night together. So anyway, aside from that, I, uh, I said, sure, let's do it. I, you got to do it. These guys are doing our songs. Willie Dixon, yeah, Willie, they're doing our, your songs. They've done your songs. I just want to make love to you. You know, they've done it. Let's do it. They're big stars. Okay, who are these motherfuckers with the long hair? Let's do it. I'm going to take my... So they come to Chicago and they record it. And they were the first long, you know, they were a chip. The first young guys ever saw drinking hard liquor like that. They were in the studio recording. They had the illusion that uh, if they recorded the chess, it would sound like chess. That's only partially true. It sounded like chess because we had great players, you know, and we did use a certain system of echo microphone. They used our chess engineer, Ron Malo. Uh, so yeah, they recorded. In fact, they did the first recording of Satisfaction. And then finished it in LA later on in the tour. I think it was their second American tour. So I met them. 1964, I remember because I, I, I made the money and my first European, I bought a Porsche, a 64 Porsche, $147 a month payment. I had the Porsche. When I took them on a tour of chess records, the one I hit it off with immediately was Brian Jones, the one with the shoulder length hair. Sure, sure. And uh, so I hit it off with him. I took him all around, introduced them to everyone. I gave them all chess records from the shipping room, four or five albums each, you know, and they were like blown away. And they said, well, we're come by our motel, the Chicago, the Chicago Motel, I remember it was called Chicago Avenue, I think. 
they were leaving the next day. You know, I said, oh, you know, do we want to come by there? Or So I said to Brian, come on, I'll drive you. I liked him. We had hit it off talking around. So he came with me in my red Porsche convertible from top up. This was before Porsche. It was they were like small, like Volkswagens. Little, they weren't the fancy big million dollar ones. This is when they were first. I was a sports car guy. So this was like the a kind of idiosyncratic car. But we get to a red light, windows were down, and a bunch of guys, a typical uh, Chicago, you know, guys are, they look at Brian with Sugarland there, and they started screaming homo. That's what they called gay people back then. Homo, homo, homo at my car. I couldn't believe it, you know, homo, homo. So then I drove them to the motel and uh, hung out with them for an hour. The most I had at that time, I had drank a screwdriver with orange juice and vodka, you know. They were drinking hard liquor, and uh, it wasn't. Anyway, that's how I met the Rolling Stones. And um, so years later, the, the worst period of my psychological life is coming back with my uncle from the radio station. I told you he had a mobile phone and you had to call a mobile operator. You couldn't dial it yourself. So they called me from the phone and they said, we've just sold chess to Alan set it up to the that GRT company. Don't worry. They're telling me this on a phone after I've been raised to take it over. Never, you know, take the money you need, whatever you need to live. I was a partner in a way, you know. They raised me like an immigrant way. I'm going to inherit it. I was like, oh, my God. You know, I was like shocked, you know. They sold the company, my company. But don't worry. You're going to have enough money from it to start your own label. They were pacified me. So I was extremely upset and a few weeks later, I had gone to San Francisco on a promotion trip. That was the number one station to get my blues out, my psychedelic shit. Pay it was uh, Donnie and Mitchell. They were the number one alternative show in San Francisco in Oakland. That was during that Oakland, Berkeley. It was like big listening. And I uh, knew the winners, John and Yane Winner well. I slept on their couch one night. Jan was crazy. I used to say, oh, my God, this guy, he'd wake up at 3 in the morning and with his bathrobe, go to work, to work on copy. You know, he was really into this magazine then. And um, they were managing an artist called Boz Skaggs. And they had had one album that was a failure put out on Atlantic. Jan had gotten it put out. They took me to a club to watch Boz's band live. And I was blown away. It was a great rock and roll white band. He was great. And uh, Boz Skaggs drove me to the airport. I wanted Boz then to be my first artist on my new label that I was going to have with this money I was going to get from the sale. And uh, I wanted Boz to be my first artist. So, uh, yeah, I remember he drove me to the airport. He, he also helped change my life because he gave me a manuscript of the famous psychedelic book uh, by Carlos Castaneda. Uh, you know that those books I mean, uh, those uh, mm-hmm. first uh, what was that that first that first famous book? He had no he had had the manuscript from Berkeley where Castaneda was a professor. He was into psych- that San Francisco psychedelic buzz at the time. He gave me that, told me about how he'd gone to India and take lived on an ashram and got his head together. And I went back to Chicago. And then my father died. And died. He, had no he died, died suddenly, didn't he? He died suddenly. He dropped dead in the car, 52 years old, driving the car with that woman from the radio station, Bernadette C. Washington, coming back. But the company had been sold. And uh, my, my dad, you know, my dad was still the president of it. My uncle was still there. My dad died suddenly. And, um, you know, that was like hardly shocking. I was in California 
on another business trip flying back when I landed, they told me it died. You know, the company had just been sold like eight months before. Then they called me in after he was buried and said, you know, they, they wanted to make me co-president with this guy who had stole. They didn't know he had stolen from chess, so sold out. You know, I didn't want to get involved. I, I was in a very bad state of mind. My dad died and he had no will. So I never got, <laughs> I never got my money, you know, great lesson in life. Don't depend on anything, you know, in your head. Uh, I never got the money from the sale. I was really depressed and didn't know what to do. I hated working for this corporation that bought chess. They made me like co-president, GRT. I hated it. They wanted to move the company to New York. They thought I was too young. They wanted, they sent me to a course at American Management School. I hated it. Management, that's not how we ran chess records. Like a court, they were corporate. They had to have reports for stocks. I didn't want, I wanted to make records. They didn't understand our creative process. They wanted to dismantle it. They didn't know what they bought. In other words, they bought numbers of sales, not the concept of why it made the numbers. So I wanted to quit. I quit. I ended up quitting and I got my rug and my furniture and I went home and I had a bad, my marriage was in a bad way then, my first wife. I was depressed and then I got a great phone call from another famous record guy named Bob Krasnow, who had become then the president. Later on, he, be, he had his own label then named Blue Thumb Records, a West Coast jazz label. Uh, had, they had the Crusaders, which was like a hot jazz group at the time. And he said, look, the Rolling Stones, I've heard the Rolling Stones contracts up. They're disgusted with their manager, Alan Klein. I know if you and I join together, we can get them. You know, they got their name from Chess Records. They love you. I, I, we could get them. Let's do a deal. I said, wow, I don't know. let me think about this. So I thought about it. I thought about it. And I decided that my ego was really, like I tell you, I'm not where, that was before my transformation of the forest. I said, Bob, our egos are, we are, this is the psychedelic age. So everyone was into their egos and how do you lose your ego? I don't know if you were from that era, but that was a big Timothy Leary kind. I was into the, 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 the Ram Dust, the Harvard School sure. of Psychedelia. Sure, sure. Um, so I said, you know, our egos are too big. There would be problems. I don't want to do it, but would you give me Mick, you know how I could reach Mick Jagger? Maybe it's something for me. And he gave me Mick Jagger's home number. And I called it and Mick answered. And Marshall Chess, I mean, how are you? I said, look, my dad died. I don't know if you know, Chess has been sold. I'm depressed. I'm looking for something new to do. I wanted to start a label with Boss Cags. They don't have the money. I had to let that idea go. I hear you're, you want to be free and do something new. I've heard that through the grapevine. Is that true? She said, yeah, it's true, Marshall. I'd love to come talk to you. I've just been, had my passport taken at the airport because I had amphetamines coming through customs. That's what he told me. Yeah, I'd come to Chicago. I think he would have loved to, you know, to come back to chess, but I can't. Can you come to England? So I said, yeah, I'll go to England. You know, two weeks later, I take a trip to London. I call his office. He had a, a personal assistant named Joe Bergman, American woman living in London, a great woman running that shit. She said, oh, mixing Ireland writing. I said, writing the motherfucker. You know, I was all just the motherfucker comes out of my mouth very easily. My father, and they used to get Mother's Day cards. These early, on Mother's Day, the early record guys sent cards to each other. Mother's Day, when that was invented. So I said, uh, and I actually defended the word motherfucker uh, in a court case in Washington, a freedom of speech case. But what's up? that's another story. So here, here uh, I say, I, he says, you know, I come, can you come to London? So I tell this Joe, I said, what the fuck? I came all the way here. Let me call Mick. Oh, he'll be back in two days. Okay. So I, two days come by. I get the call. Uh, this is Mick's house on Cheney Walk. Go see him. 
So, uh, I, you know, I'm a little nervous. I mean, my whole future is at stake. Um, and I hadn't seen Mick since, you know, Chicago, you know, and all that. And I go to his house and I've never, I'm a young white guy from Chicago. I had a fucking apartment. This guy has a brownstone on Cheney Walk, which is across from the river with millionaires row. And I go in and it's amazing. And I go up, I've never been in a room, a, a young person, all Oriental, I never even knew what an Oriental was. Oriental rugs, antiques. He's got this big table with a, tons of albums, out, like me, out of the cover mistreating. He's an album mistreater like me. You know, I got him free, so I just never, I it's horrible to mistreated my records. And I still have them too. I have new ones, but I have a lot of mistreated ones. So he's, I can see he's like nervous. I'm sitting on the couch and he goes up and he puts on a record, you know. Stones always have music playing. So he puts on a record. It's, I can remember to this day, it's Black Snake Blues, Clifton Chenier, Zydeco music from the Bayou. on the couch and Mick is dancing and Mick Jagger strut while he's talking to me and I'm thinking like my dad Steve this guy's nervous relax man relax you know yeah we could do something I wanted to, you know and it was good it was very positive come to our rehearsal tonight okay so I they pick me up I'm in a car we're going to East London that time they had their original rehearsal one of their in a basement in East London, some in, beneath a store somewhere. And I never was in the East End of London. I stayed where the rich hotel in the West End, you know? There I would see, I, for the first time, I said, what are all those glowing lights? And every window was a glowing light. It was in the winter. Poor people had gas heaters and you had to put coins in. You had to run to make them work. And they, those were all people's heaters, poor people's heaters glowing. And we got to this rehearsal hall and I go down to the basement and what's on the wall? My poster of electric mud and muddy and white robes. Ah, the English love my electric shit. They love Stephen Winwood wrote me about that album. Even he was the guy from Traffic. You remember sure, that album? Sure, of course. Of so course. yeah, so yeah, I want to do it. I want to do it. So then I bullshitted him. I said, well, here's the thing. I'm working with rich Texans to get money for a label. Total bullshit. And I have to know soon whether to close that deal. I said I would be interested. Oh, that was to me the greatest live in Europe, Rolling Stones. This is like a fucking payback from just being destroyed. My family, it's like I trained for an Olympic event and they canceled the Olympics, you know, to be a chess record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gave him two weeks. Man, on the 14th day, I got a Western Union telegram. We want to do it. Come to London. And I went to London and I met Prince Rupert. They had just hired him to handle their money and problems and uh, lawyers to get rid of Alan Klein. Unfortunately, their lawyers were on Alan Kind's payroll secretly. It was weird. That was, I found all that years later. It's, you know, the business was crazy then. That's why Alan Klein's company still owns all the Stones early masters in publishing. Just, just stop a sec, because Alan Klein is such a notorious figure in history. And I'm reading notorious. A, he had the Beatles and Stones. Both. I'm, and I'm reading a, a great, great book now about Sam Cooke. Yes. And there was a documentary, I don't know if you saw on Netflix, The Twin Killings of Sam Cooke. I did not see that. It's a great, great film. And and the, the Twin Killings refers to not only was he murdered, but he died and didn't have a penny and no yeah. one in his family got a penny that Alan Klein stole 
all yeah. of his money. Oh yeah, he, Tell, yeah, he was. Most a, people don't know much about Alan Klein. Tell us. Alan a little Klein bit about was. Him. I think he was an accountant in New York, and he and he saw the booming new giant album music market happening. This is smart, and he wanted to manage the Beatles, and ever John Lennon says that the reason they went with Alan Klein is he memorized, he knew all their songs by memory. They were just blown away. He actually knew their lyrics by memory. He loved them and they signed with Alan Klein. And because of that, he ended up signing the Rolling Stones. He had both of them, managed them. With the Rolling Stones, he had a, because I was involved with trying to get those masters back and he had it locked. Only years later that we find that they were being advised by someone that he had under on his own, on, you know, he was just a shrewd, kind of conniving guy that made millions. His son runs it now, I guess. Um, yeah, that's what he was. He was a, a real accountant, record business thief, but he went after the biggest. He went after the Beatles and Stones. I don't think he owned any of the Beatles stuff, but the Stones, all those early masters. And you know what was fascinating? That lawyer, Alan Arrow, I turned, I turned the Stones onto that same lawyer who took me around the world, the first entertainment, the Alan Ornstein and Arrow firm. They were the Stones' original lawyers with Prince Rupert making the Atlantic deal. And when we launched Rolling Stones Records, so we have a Sunday meeting with Alan Klein and the Stones and Alan Arrow and me in Manhattan. And uh, we're waiting and waiting and waiting. The Stones hadn't seen Alan in years and years, three years, four years. They're going to discuss this thing. And here he is, fuck them all, got, owns their masters. And he came in and he's wearing jog, one of the uh, jogging, remember, jogging jacket white, blue with white stripe and sneakers, and he comes in, Alan, Alan, and within minutes, they're taking photos of him. They're in love with him. They're enamored by him. It was like a classic. He just was so charismatic. He just, it was like, he, you know, and we lost the case. We, he had enough solid contracts and stuff to keep all what he owns to this day, all those early great stone stuff. Um, and then, of course, we set up everything with Prince Rupert and Dutch companies, you know, which they have to this day. Very honest. I uh, was shocked. I recently I produced the two Stones movies, Cocksucker Blues and Ladies and Gentlemen, the Rolling Stones, a live one. And uh, they're all the Stones businesses run out of Holland. They because they were Dutch companies for tax reasons. And and, and you recently, started and you started Rolling Stones Records with them. Oh yeah, we started Rolling Stones Records. Yeah, we decided to start Rolling Stones Records with Atlantic as the distributor. I made, I was involved with the uh, negotiation with that same lawyer, Prince Rupert, Alan Arrow, the Erdogans. They had a great Atlantic lawyer then too. Uh, it was interesting. The thing is, I, uh, my big memory from the contract negotiation is, not stroking my own self, was I really was a record man. Ahmed wasn't. Ahmed was a great record person, but not a record man. 
I knew about, we had a pressing plan and I knew how much it cost, how to make a record, how much it cost. And that's how we got the largest $1 in album royalty because they couldn't argue. Ahmed started sweating. That's all I knew. My dad taught me so many tricks about body English. Ahmed pulled that handkerchief out and he started doing this on his bald head like that, you know? And I knew I won. And we got the album deal. Mike Mayer was the lawyer. We got a dollar an album with a big budget. And all Ahmed said, he called it, Marshall, all I want get me a fucking album every 18 months from these motherfuckers. And I did. I and, did. And those were seminal years, Exile on Seminal Main years, Street. man. It was started out with Sticky Fingers. The first project I did was the last London Decca record called Get Your Yayas Out. And that was the, a great meeting when, uh, when uh, I met Sir Edward Lewis. We went to the board meeting because the Stones contract with London Decca had, the, not, they owned all the tracks recorded during their recording period, even if they hadn't heard them. In other words, that was the deal. So I had to get together all the tracks that were recorded and bring them to London Deck. And Mick hated that. He just hated that. So while we were recording at the time Sticky Fingers, um, he recorded that track called Cocksucker Blues. Uh, can I sing the lyric to you? Yes, you know, sure. I'm a stranger in town. Where can I get my cock sucked? Where can I get my ass fucked? I'm a stranger in town. So that was the shock the deck of people when we played it live for them, this little, we gave them tunes, you know, not every little morsel, but we gave them, we gave them, you know, they, it wasn't anything great that was in the can. Um, and that cut was on it. Uh, I went there, I remember the English lawyer, Patty Grafton Green. He's the one of the biggest entertainment lawyers to this day in the UK. But yeah, so that's how that, that that's what happened. We did Rolling Stones records. So we decided we wanted to sign artists on the label and give them their own imprint. So our next artist was going to be Jimi Hendrix, who we heard was available for outside the U.S. right before he died. I was driving. They, we were recording with our truck. In, we, we were recording a, in Rotterdam, Holland, and I landed in Amsterdam. And um, I drove, um, drive, drove to Rotterdam. It's a couple of hours. It's an easy ride. And I, and I was shocked because my neighborhood in Chicago was Shell Oil gas station. And it always had the yellow shell with red letters, S-H-E-L-L. -L. But it's the first time I noticed in Europe, because Dutch is, Shell's a Dutch company, I'm on a highway, there's a Shell gas station, but it doesn't have the letters. That's how popular, everyone knew that logo, that strong. That was my contribution to the tongue and lips. So that meeting, when we had our meeting about the label, I said, there's one thing. And I, I remembered all this because there, there's been a book written now about that logo. The guy, some real logo nerd wrote it. So I said, you know, the only thing I can suggest is we come up with something that doesn't need type, that gets that recognizable. And they love that idea. And I think Maker Charlie said, I, I think Charlie had gone to art school in London. Charlie said, I know someone that is Jonathan, John Pash, the artist who I know that doing. And I guess they contacted him and told part of the idea was to have no to have no type and if you if you if you have old rolling stones vinyl it does stay we, we scribed it in along the edge rolling stones record like what would usually be printed it was scribed into the vinyl and that's how that that's how that began the first album was with a warhol cover you know was uh, sticky fingers with the zipper cover and it became number one and you know every album i ever did was number one and uh, i had a great run you know it was just a fabulous fabulous run they never once told me what to do uh, because we had success you know, I traveled around the world, like, you know, first class, private. It was a whole other lifestyle. Uh, and it was an amazing situation. And talk a little bit about a figure who's also a little bit lost in history, but was such a seminal figure in all that. And that's Brian Jones. 
Yeah, Brian Jones, you know, probably, you know, root seminal figure. And I think a lot of it, believe it or not, the Stones will hear this, they'll hate me. My own psychological examination, Brian Jones had a love affair with a gorgeous, wonderful woman who died recently named Anita Pallenberg. Mm -hmm. She was a German actress. Her father was a Nazi captain or lieutenant in Italy, you know, so she was raised in Italy. Gorgeous, gorgeous probably the one of the sexiest women I've ever been within a foot of, you know, and that was Brian Jones's close girlfriend. Brian Jones, she ran off. Brian Jones and Keith went in Keith's Bentley and they drove to the south of Spain and took a ferry across to Morocco, the three of them. Somewhere in the middle of the trip, they threw Brian out. She started fucking Keith, you know, and Brian, Brian was such a sensitive, delicate soul. He was, I, I even just sensed that from, um, he, you know, he got blown away and he left. And Anita was the, to me, Anita was the big influence in the image and look that Keith Richards look, that was the Anita influence. And I got to know that I lived in their house with them. I lived on the top floor, you know, I, so I got an intimate, so I think Anita Pollenberg and Brian Jones, the two of them really laid the foundation for the Rolling Stones image and sound to begin. I think Keith did not really bloom till after Brian died. That's when Keith really bloomed, you know? And then a lot, then to me, which was the greatest as, as far as the music production end is when they got Mick Taylor, because then you had this fabulous, similar to Brian, you had this amazing rhythm of Keith, brilliant rhythm playing rhythm guitar with the beautiful, delicate Les Paul guitar leads of Mick Taylor. And the interplay to me was my records with the Stones. The two of them were brilliant. Although I, I, I think Ronnie Wood is brilliant and deserves to be a Rolling Stone. He really plays Keith style. They're really similar players. Um, they don't have, you know, that delicate, that other sound. You know, they, they somehow emulate it, but it wasn't the same once Mick Taylor and, and Brian Jones left. But yeah, then Brian... I think, you know, he was just, you know, he took, he, we all were taking drugs in that era. He was very depressed. I mean, you, you know, I've had a few sour love affairs. It hurts. And if you're weak and don't have help and you take drugs and he had a swimming pool, you know, where he could uh, easily OD or whatever he did. I mean, there's people say he was, I think he just OD'd in his swimming pool and died, but that's, I don't know. No one really knows. Yeah, but he was a major, major influence. But then Keith and Mick really blossomed as a team, um, even though when they didn't really love each other. I went through that period. They both lived on Cheney Walk, a block apart. You know, I was the only guy. I was friends with both Bianca and Anita. I was like the middleman. I would, I mean, it was period of my time with the Soul I was going back and forth, back and forth, trying to make it all cohesive. You know, and, and I did it well. I was in the right place and right time for me. It was a great, a great, hot, you know, amazing period. Unfortunately, I, uh, losing chess records finally got to me when I experienced hard drugs the first time and all of a sudden felt really good. I didn't know at that time that I had a whole well of pain in me from right. having my life's right. thing right. taken away from me, you know, in a wisp, even though I was with the Rolling Stones. I only through years and years of work on myself that I realized that was what was, you know, I had to get rid of that, deal with that. That was what drove my own drug situation. And then uh, I became real close with both Mick and Keith. Bill Wyman was already, they were having problems with him, personality problems, even though he was in the band and played in all the sessions. Keith would replace a lot of his parts after they were recorded. I was always in the middle of that. And then Bill would never mention it. It was a lot of inter-band, you know, uh, psychological things to deal with. But, you know, like any band like that has that. I don't think it was anything special or different. I'm sure the Grateful Dead, Beatles, they all had that, you know, any kind of group of people for years and years that are together.
have those kind of things happen. Amazing. And were you in the house in France when they did Exile on Main Street? Of course. I was part of getting the house rented, building the mobile truck that we took down there. Phil and Nelcott. Yeah, I was. I was definitely there. That's when I uh, uh, first got my first taste of hard drugs. guy there from Marseille, you know, it was when that French, remember the French connection? That sure. was all happening. Sure. Um, yeah. Keith, Mick had a great, I, I stayed at both, but Mick's house was Mozart's old house. Unbelievable. Up uh, in the, on the hills there in Villa, in, in Capferrat, France. Yeah, we made that album. It was amazing. I mean, you know, I had to build a kitchen. The old mansions in France um, had the kitchen in the basement with dumbwaiters to bring the food up to the millionaires. I had to rebuild a kitchen, hire a chef. We would all join for one meal a day. The chef would make in this long table, pass around bowls of pot and hash and eat, and then go to record all night, every night, all night. Different rooms in the basement with pipes and dampness. And Jimmy Miller was there, you know, we had Andrew Johns, the engineer, both dead of drugs. I'm one of the survivors. Yeah, and that was amazing. And uh, yeah, I stayed there the whole time. I was with my, that was my life until I finally left. I left because uh, finally I realized that I, I was a uh, heroin addict, heroin addict of a, a special type. I mean, I carried Narcan, which they now, you know, for ODs. I mean, I had it way back then. I, I uh, used to get methadone on the black market and I had a pharmacist who would make me fake labels so I could travel without, you know, look like tonic, you know? I went through that horrible drug period. And one day I was in Montreux, Switzerland, where we were living. Keith was living in Switzerland. We were in Montreux and uh, I woke up in a hotel room, um, sick, drug sick. I had that bottle of methadone in my shaving kit and I went to the bathroom and looked in the mirror and I, it's like, it was an epiphany. I saw myself, how I looked. I mean, I was like, you know, I saw it for the first time and I quit that night. <laughs> I, I had, uh, it's a funny story because I went that night, we were all together and I said, I've got to leave. I, I, I'm going to die. You know, I can't, this is not me. I got to leave. Oh, I just knew I had to that morning. You know, I knew it had ended. The relationship had to end for me to survive. Not, it had nothing to do with them. They had nothing to do with my drug addiction. Yes. They exposed me to it. Whether I, if I hadn't, hadn't known them, I would have probably needed a lot of psychiatry and maybe never, you know, that was all part of my way out. I'm, I'm not against being a drug addict. It was a, a period of self-learning and right. kicking it was an amazing experience, like climbing Mount Everest, you know. Many people told me I could never do it, you know. And all these years, Marshall, you're still here, still in music, and now you get to work with your son. I get to work with my son, which is just thrilling. Third generation, pure record man. You know, he did all the music for Narcos. I mean, he did Latino music, you know. And even today, he's helping me with this uh, KRS-One Big Joe Crash comic book, because Disney owns it now, to try to see if we can reestablish it, you know. Yeah, it's the greatest. It's just the thrill. And I, I dragged, you know, I did what I did with him like I did with my father did. He's been dragged around to recording sessions right from the beginning, all over. No, and then when he was in college, they had a studio there, and he discovered a kid from Italy, Jacopo, Italian rapper. And I said, record him. Let's make, you know, record him. And I took him to Italy to teach him how hard it was to sell a project with his master. This was part of my education. Like, just like what my dad did, I sort of replay that. We're in Milano. And the first, the first label is uh, 
we go to Universal, who owned the chess. Rap was just starting in Italy then, Italian rap. The Universal guy was a real asshole. I told him to his face, because the way he talked to me about it, I said, you don't know what the fuck is going on. Like, I wanted to show my kid how to stand up for himself, these fucking executives. Second was BMG. Marshall, I love it. It's, it's great, but BMG is going with being sold. It's not the time. Now he's all depressed. We go to Warner, Italia next. Tino Salvestri. Ah, Marshall. He pulls out a grappa. We all have a shot. Puts it on. I want to sign it. It's the greatest. I make it. We make a deal. In Italy, we record them in Firenze with, with strings from the local music school. And it wasn't a hit, Jacopo, but he had that experience. So he's in college. He puts a, uh, there's a Japanese supermarket in New Jersey where they all go, all the Japanese go to buy the products from Japan. He puts something on their bulletin board about, you get a Japanese rapper, he gets a response. Onigashima, that's next. A young kid who's a Japanese rapper living in New Jersey. Father's a businessman. I make a deal with him. We have our own label called Big Cities in Tokyo. He sells it. They, they flip out for it in Japan. We record it. It wasn't a hit. Like, that's fine. But we did it. He, he did it. He made a label deal in Japan. He came out. We went to Tokyo with me twice. And so he's our two internationals. And then uh, when he graduated college, I brought him into the music publishing I was running at the time, Arc Music. And, uh, you know, became, he became a record man. I dragged him around and he's still helping me to this day. I mean, he's, he's better than I ever was at that age, you know. Um, it's really, it's, it's an amazing, it is, it's a thrilling thing to see. The thing is, there aren't record men anymore. That's the thing I tell him. I was showing him about this KRS-One, about all these, all these things that, that are right out in people's, but there's no more, record labels are departments and they don't really think creatively from the one process to the end anymore. They think sec creatively, but in sections, you know? Yeah. But again, I don't know. I have no idea. I made this new album. I, I came, he told me to make the Virus Blues uh, 17 minutes and would make a video with it, which I have, because that's what YouTube likes. Right. They can play it. Right, I right. didn't even know about, I don't know about that, about streaming and YouTube. He's advising me now. Right. He's my advisor. You know. Fantastic. So Marshall, just to close, you know, one of the things that you talked about in the early days of chess was nobody saw color. And I had Steve Cropper on, Great Minds. Yeah. We, we talked about you know, Booker T and the MGs, Duck Dunn, who I know yeah. you work with, and right. Al Jackson and Booker, too white, too black. And at Stax, they didn't see color either. Look at what's going on in America today with all of our challenges around race. Woo! What do you, what, what's your take wow. on all that? Because it's, it's such a tough time here I in the think, States. I, you know, I, 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 think, I think it's, it's great. It's about time. I've been aware of systemic racism my whole life. I can remember Officer Berger coming in and said, I just killed this nigger and put a gun in his hand. I didn't want to bother with him. I remember that, man. This is from 1960s. White cop, Jewish cop, Detective Berger, Sam Berger or something. I remember it. We had tons of it against my family, you know, because of being white and dealing with black people. I just feel we are the problem. We have allowed bad education from slavery on. We've allowed bad health, bad diet. We've made, a, as KRS would tell me years ago when I met him, we've, we have a generation of insane youth. They're mentally ill. They kill each other for sneakers, to rob sneakers. They shoot, look in Chicago. They shoot, we've made it. We have a mentally ill generation. So I'm horribly upset at the depth of how fucked up it is. And how hard it's going to be to just get out of it. And, and the way Trump has inflamed it 
has just inflamed it has really upset me so much because it's such a hard climb. It's climbing Mount Everest for the black culture to come out of this. What did they do to Obama? Oh, black president. They took it. Look what they did. They took everything he did or tried to away from the man, you know? His wife tried to change the diet. They dissed her, you know, now that look what we got now, you know? I mean, someone who tells you not to wear a mask. The road, it's such a steep climb. It's so ingrained in young white and young black people. And, and I don't want to use the word stupid. Oh God, they're like malnutritioned psychically due to us creating a system that caused it. And now we're complaining about it, you know? I don't know. Yeah, there's going to be, I'm afraid of, I am afraid of race wars and all those things with the white militias. And how about the black militias that no one talks about? They're, they're ready. The white star, there's a lot of guns. I could see a gang in Chicago. Yeah, I could see war. I saw it in Chicago with Mother Cabrini riots. You know, I was in Chicago, those civil riots. My final parting of racism. We had that WVON, Voices of the Negro radio station, millions of listeners. The riots in Chicago, the race riots of the Mother Cabrini. Mayor Daly, Richard, the old Mayor Daly, the old man, right? Calls up my father. My father calls me, Marshall, you won't believe it. Daly just called me. I said, well, what did he say? He said, Leonard, the niggers are on the warpath. Can you help me? Mm, End of set. That's what my father, Leonard, you want guards around your radio station? This is back in the 60s, man. It's now 40 years later and it's worse, yeah, you know? Geez. And back then the black, they just had knives. No one had guns, you know? Right. Different so yeah, way. I'm very worried about the racism and I've often wanted to speak up, but you know, I became good friends when, when I did that Scorsese film and we involved Chuck D uh, who caught, I got, you know, my, Scorsese did that series, seven films. Yeah, I heard seven directors called The Blues. Mark Levin, this great documentary director in uh, New York called me up. I want to do chess records. Will you work with me? I said, yeah. Uh, I don't know what we're going to do it on, but I'll work with you. And just pure, pure coincidence. A week later, I get an email. Mr. Chess, hi, my name is Chuck D. You may not know who I am. I'm the lead singer in a hip hop group called, I think he said rap group, called Public Enemy. I want you to know I've been reading negative reports of your Electric Mud album. I want you to know that's one of the most sample albums that helped change hip hop. It turned us all on to the original black blues singers. Thank you. You're being dissed. And I couldn't believe it. So I emailed them back. Yeah, I know who you are. You have to tell me. Thank you so much. You made my day. So then I send that email to Mark Levin, the director. And I said, could this be a movie? Me introducing Chuck to the Chicago and the blues. He said, oh my God, that's it. So Chuck agreed. And I said, never met Chuck. And my uncle was in New York coming to visit. And he was already had a, a brain injury, but he was still my uncle, Uncle Phil, because we had the publishing together. He came with his son. I said to Chuck D, you come to Chicago, we're gonna film meeting for the first time. And we did, it's in the film. He came and they had the camera set up, he met my uncle. And then I took him to Chicago and took him to Maxwell Street. And the old blues guys were still there tearing it down. Took him to Chess Records. He sure. was so, he's, a, he's really a blues, black music historian, you know, fantastic. You, you know, after going around Chicago, it was fantastic. And then I worked at Sugar Hill, the birth of hip hop. Broken glass everywhere, people pissing on the stage, you know they just don't care. I can't take the smell, can't take the noise, got no money to move out, I guess I got no choice. Rats in the front room, roaches in the back, junkies in the alley with the baseball bat. I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far, cause a man with the touch of repossessed my car. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge, I'm trying 
not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. You know, all the message, Grandmaster Flash, White Lines. I was there for all that. And I did the record with Malcolm X's wife called No Sellout, the 12-inch. So I had to become partners with Betty Shabazz. We got burned up later. She was my, she, she said, I hate white people. She was a PR head of Megder Eggers University. And me and Keith LeBlanc, the drummer, we, after we made the record, we had to get it approved by the Muslim people in New York, the, the lyric. I like Malcolm X because he changed. That it wasn't just black; it was everyone who he got the universality of humanity. I love that about him. We use that in the record called "No Sellout." Black, white, red—doesn't matter. You know that was a very good lyric. So I got to know Betty Shabazz. She told me right there, "I hate white people," but you know, but uh, we ended up. I, I had to take her to lunch with all her. She had these typical black hierarchy. She had all these secretaries that kissed her ass like she was Queen of Shiva, you know. And I took her to the Chinese restaurant, me and Keith in Brooklyn, wherever that was. That was a classic. But yeah, you know, I, I've been around with the, that that part of it. I have been around a little. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Marshall, this was anyway, such man, a joy. I'm glad I did it. It was, yeah. I, it's like I had a, a great release. I told it, you know, I haven't done this in a long time. Well, it was great. good. Please, please I feel thank- really empty and I feel better now. I'm glad you do. And please thank Jamar for me and I'll stay in touch.